In Motley Crue's autobiography, The Dirt, band leader, bassist, and questionable truth-teller at times, Nikki Six, writes in part about the band's recording of the album, Shout at the Devil. One of the things that's remarkable about The Dirt is, of course, it's an incredibly entertaining book, but for a book about and actually by musicians who've been wildly successful and had many hit songs, there's really not a whole lot in there about the music. And this particular section about Shallot the Devil is no exception. Nikki Six isn't talking about sitting in the studio and coming up with this chord change or that chord change. He's actually talking about how he and perhaps other members of the band and his inner circle were experimenting with black magic in the occult. Now, most of this is rather innocuous. For example, Nikki talks about how the band trying to say Jesus is Satan backward, but what it sounded like coming out was scrambled eggs and wine. I, I guess they were trying to intentionally do a backmasking, but actually just trying to say the words backward and putting the tape that way. He also writes about how at the time he became convinced that President Reagan was actually the Antichrist. President Reagan's full name being Ronald Wilson Reagan, and each word in that name containing six letters, which add them up, or I guess put them in a line, makes it 666. This seems to be somewhat questionable reasoning, but again, this is Nikki Six in the early to mid-80s Motley Crue. Nikki also puts forth an anecdote that he seemed to be relying on at the time. And again, this is where Nikki Six is either his memory to be more charitable or his reputation for truthfulness at times may be called into question. But anyway, he writes, I told everybody that he would be shot through the heart and recover quicker than any man could, and he did. There's at least some truth to that. Ronald Reagan was the victim of an attempted assassination by John Hinckley, who thought he was impressing the actress Jodie Foster by trying to kill the President of the United States. Hinckley did fire a round that ricocheted off a car, I think, went into the President's chest, nicked a rib, and settled in his lung, puncturing it, and he did nearly die. He wasn't exactly shot through the heart, and this happened in March of 1981, Motley didn't record Shout at the Devil until 1983, but I suppose it's close enough to give Nikki some points. Anyway, he also, though, talks about some more physical manifestations of a more immediate nature happening to Motley Crue. He talks about Tommy Lee's car blowing up, that Vince Neil kept wiping out in his car. I can't imagine there being a more secular explanation for that. But then he writes, in almost an offhanded way, and objects would levitate and fly around Lita's in my house. He's talking about Lita Ford at that point, his then-girlfriend. Objects would levitate and fly around our house. And that's all he writes about that, which seems a whole lot more interesting to me than Ronald Wilson Reagan's each part of his name having six letters. Fortunately, just a few pages before that, Famed A&R man Tom Zutout, who signed Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses in the 1980s, which means that's a pretty good career for a guy, also writes about visiting Nikki and Lita's house around this time. Tom frames it as sort of being concerned. I mean, I'm sure he had other reasons for visiting this band, but 
he was concerned about the creation of the album that would be Shout at the Devil because at the time, Nicky wanted to call it Shout with the Devil. He talks about how Nicky was getting into things like the Necronomicon, which I think is a big con and almost sort of a jokey book, but whatever. He refers to it as a black magic spell book, and I know that's how the Necronomicon is at least presented, uh, even if it is all sort of an inside joke. But that Nikki was also getting involved in satanic stuff and the occult and that sort of thing. And he was really wanting to call this album Shout with the Devil. And Tom knew the record label is going to have a problem with it. They could use that as an excuse to bury the album and not promote it. The early 1980s were far different than even what would come 5, 10, 15 years later, certainly now. So Tom describes the story of going over to Nikki's house where Lita Ford was living too. And... Going with the purpose, I'm going to try to get him to change the name of this album. He describes getting to the house and find Nikki and Lita cuddled up on a couch and Lita being kind of freaked out. He asked her why and she said that weird things just keep happening here. Cabinet doors keep opening and shutting. There are weird noises and things keep flying around the apartment for no reason. Tom says that he spoke to Nikki and said, you got to lay it off with this black magic stuff. It's You don't know what you're doing. It could be dangerous. And, Nikki kind of blew him off saying that it's just meaningless symbols and he's just doing it to make people mad. It's not like he actually worships Satan or anything. Zutout writes that he knew he was defeated, didn't want to have the argument anymore, so he left. But two nights later, he returned to the home and again found Nikki and Lita there looking much paler than usual. Tom writes that there were forks and knives sticking in the walls and ceiling. And he asked him, what have you guys been doing? And Lita Ford said, we haven't been doing anything, man. I tried to tell you, stuff is just flying around here on its own. And now that I'm getting to the crux of it, I just want to read the next two paragraphs in their entirety. Tom Zutout, in his part of The Dirt, writes, As she said that, and I swear to God I saw this with my own eyes, a knife and a fork rose off the table and stuck into the ceiling just above where I was sitting. I looked at Nikki and freaked out. There is no more shout with the devil. If you keep shouting with the devil, you're going to get killed. You can believe what you want, but I truly believe that Nikki had unknowingly tapped into something evil, something more dangerous than he could control that was on the verge of seriously hurting him. Nikki must have realized the same thing because he decided on his own to change the album title to Shout at the Devil. To this day, that incident remains one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen in my life. Now, A few disclaimers. One, I think Lita Ford has written an autobiography. I've never read it. I'm not really that interested in Lita Ford. I don't know whether she references this story or not. Two, I have no information regarding Tom Zutout's sobriety in 1983, let's say. And three, I don't know what Tom Zutout's reputation for honesty is. I mean, one would have to concede, as an A&R man, there's a certain amount of myth-making and reputation-building that goes into a job like that. And that said, I am interested in the truth of these two anecdotes. It's interesting to me whether, in fact, knives and forks were indeed flying around an apartment or house or whatever it was shared by Nikki Six and Lita Ford. But I also am interested in posing a different question, perhaps slightly sacrilegious question. And that's this. Does this story make you feel more religious? 
I'm John Pritchard, and this is Well Disguised. I want to say from Jump Street that I don't think it's particularly relevant what my personal religious beliefs are to this conversation. And that's a good thing because I'm not really certain what my religious beliefs are. On any given Monday, I may, based on a junior high era religious experience, call myself a Christian. But on Tuesday, I may call myself a deist. Wednesday may be the day that I'm reading a book about Norse mythology and kind of thinking that maybe what I really need is a more martial God. But then on Thursday, rather than training my body and my mind in a effort to honor my elders and my ancestors, I may kind of go with that hippy-dippy idea that God is love, that God is not a thing or a, a person or a person-like figure, but it is really more of an idea and the closest that we can get to what we think of as God, is by loving each other. On Friday, however, I may be inclined to mix Monday and Tuesday and call myself a Christian deist, which I think is something that I made up. Come Saturday, I may just straight up be an agnostic, if not an atheist. And on Sunday, I'm not going to church, but I am going to watch as many hours of NFL football as possible. Ultimately, I grew up in the American South in North Carolina in a Methodist household, not a super religious household. We went to church four Sundays out of five, but we didn't talk about church or God a whole lot other than those Sunday mornings and a brief recap at lunch on Sunday of what we thought of the minister's sermon. But obviously Christianity is the religion of the major religions that I'm most familiar with. And with that familiarity comes some healthy skepticism of parts of the Bible. Now, I feel like any open-minded, free-thinking person who's not bought in completely to the dogma that exists in so many religious circles is going to have some of the same questions that I do about the Bible. For me, the jumping-off point, which I admit is probably philosophically or maybe not philosophically as much as intellectually kind of easy, is I have a little bit of problem with the story of Noah. Now, as you no doubt are already familiar with, the basics of the story of Noah is that God appeared to this faithful man named Noah and told him to build an ark. And upon the ark, he would take a male and a female of all species of land animals on the earth, and along with a few members of Noah's family, because God was going to send a great flood that would rid the world of all the wickedness in his eyes because the world had become so corrupt. And of course, that's what happened. Everyone on earth dies. Noah and all these animals survive. Now, let's ignore for a minute that many religions have as part of their teachings the myth of the Great Flood. And 
that may even have a historical root or origin in an actual flood that took place centuries ago on the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq. We can also skip over the more hard-to-explain parts of the Noah myth, like, for example, how did the marsupials, like the kangaroo, get from Australia to the Ark and then back to Australia? Or how did animals indigenous to North America, like the American alligator or the red fox, get from North America to the Ark and then back across the Atlantic? Even the famous sloth, the slowest mammal on Earth, how did a sloth, or two sloths I guess, get the gumption up to get across the Atlantic to the Ark and then back to South America where they are only found? And then of course there's the more basic question, the more fundamental question, How did this God of love, this Prince of Peace, get away with this genocide? How did he kill every single person on earth except for Noah and a few members of his family? What about the babies? What about the mentally handicapped? What about the elderly? What about the crippled who couldn't have gone and helped build the ark even if they wanted to? They're all just dead. And we're supposed to worship that? I mean, I guess I can see it out of fear, but not anything else. I mean, this is totally farcical and ridiculous, right? I sometimes feel about the Bible that the hidden joke, the inside joke, is right there in front of you at the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, what gets Adam and Eve in trouble is that they eat an apple, the so-called forbidden fruit, from the tree of knowledge. And that's because if you have knowledge, you can't believe some of the hocus-pocus bull that comes after it. The Bible is winking at us right from the beginning. That said, though, later in life, I became familiar with the Jefferson Bible, which was compiled, obviously, by Thomas Jefferson. And the story of the Jefferson Bible is that, first of all, Thomas Jefferson never meant for it to be published. It was a personal creation of his that was only found and then published posthumously. But what Jefferson did was he took some of his favorite translations of the New Testament and just cut parts of them out and glued them together, so to speak, to make his own Bible. So some of them were a French translation, some of them were English, some of them were Latin. But Jefferson put them all together from the New Testament, and what he did is he stripped out all the supernatural elements of the New Testament. So there's no walking on water. There's no turning water into wine. There's no creating a massive meal out of a few loaves of bread and fish. And there's no resurrection. And what's left is obviously a much shorter work, but also is basically Jesus' teachings, which boil down to love each other and take care of those who are less fortunate than yourself. Which seems like a pretty good way to live. But I digress. Another part of the whole religious thing, the whole Christian thing, that I kind of have a problem with is Satan. Or the idea of Lucifer. And I know it's been blown up in pop culture to be something that probably doesn't actually really appear in the Bible. But in the same way that people sometimes tell you, you can't blame God for things that man does. You can't blame God for wars, for example, or the Holocaust, because those are things that man did that are outside of God's teachings. People seem really willing to blame the devil for almost anything. And to me, it's not really fair to blame the devil either for stuff that we do. Satan, to me, seems to have a lot in common with the United States Postal Service in that he gets blamed for a lot more than he deserves. 
if you're blaming the devil or Lucifer or some demon for eating that extra piece of pie or sticking that needle in your arm or telling lies to your wife, you're avoiding responsibility. You're scapegoating and you need to man up. But, but, how do you mesh that? How do I mesh that with the demonic force that's throwing knives and forks around Nikki Six's house? And that's the thing with hard rock and heavy metal. The stories of occult experiences, demonic encounters, are legion. And those stories bring me back to the central question of this episode, which is, do those stories make you feel more or less religious? Do they give you greater or less belief in God? To be fair, there are stories and tales that go the other way, even if they are not always borne out necessarily either. The most famous semi-recent example is Alex Malarkey. And again, this is almost like the Adam and Eve story. His last name is Malarkey. But anyway, he's the young child who claimed to die and went to heaven and ended up writing a story about his experiences and adventures there that turned into a book called The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven. And it was a bestseller. And then four or five years after it came out, he wrote a short message on a Christian website saying, yeah, I made it all up. To my knowledge, Nikki Six and Tom Zutout have not recanted their story. And neither have many of the other people who've had experiences like that in the world of hard rock and heavy metal. For example, you can go on YouTube and watch an interview that Dave Mustaine did for a series that showed up on ABC. Of course, Dave Mustaine, if you don't know, and I don't know why you're listening to my show if you don't, but he was originally in Metallica, and he is the founder and leader of the big four band Megadeth. Dave Mustaine, who I should probably note is now a born-again Christian, talked about how in his teenage years, he fell into black magic. And more specifically, he learned how to put hexes on people. And Mustaine describes how he determined that black magic was real from two separate experiences. My mom was a Jehovah's Witness. I was brought up as a witness and I revolted into the witchcraft because I hated going out and knocking on people's doors. Yes, witchcraft. As a teenager, Mustaine says, he cast two hexes. The first was on a bully who sucker punched him. From what I heard, he got in a car accident and something happened to part of his body that I had targeted in the hex. And that showed me that it was real. The second was on a girl he was in a class with. Everybody wanted her, including me, but she was so out of my batting average and and, uh, just totally out of my league. And I did it, and um, the next day she was in my apartment. You were convinced that these hexes, that you were spells that you were casting, worked? I was, and, and I do believe in the dark side. Most people think that, you know, black magic and witchcraft and stuff like that isn't real or it doesn't work, and, and I, I know that it works. Well, maybe it works, but I don't know that we can necessarily say it for sure based on those anecdotes. I mean, people do get in car wrecks and get hurt, and young guitar-playing future rock stars may be more attractive to members of the opposite sex than they initially believe. But it's hardly like Dave Mustaine's encounter is the only one out there. In issue 284 of Classic Rock Magazine, the best magazine there ever was, 
There is an article in this issue about the making of Rainbow's third album, Long Live Rock and Roll. Former editor and classic heavy metal writer Mick Wall writes the article. Mick Wall has the best rock podcast there is, a lot better than this one called Get Your Rocks Off. I encourage you to listen to it. Mick also has a book coming out that is kind of weirdly marketed, I think, at this point, but seems to be the autobiography of Ronnie James Dio, as I guess is told to Mick Wall. I don't know. I'm sure it'll make more sense when we get it. But anyway, I'm sure the story about this album, the making of Long Live Rock and Roll, comes from his research and time spent with Ronnie James Dio. The record was recorded in a French chateau, which had a reputation for being haunted. Both Pink Floyd and Bad Company had previously recorded there, and more interesting to Richie Blackmore, the leader and founder of Rainbow, and someone who had at least a semi-famous interest in matters of the occult. David Bowie had also recorded there, but David Bowie refused to sleep in the master bedroom, saying that there was a coldness and a darkness in the place. Richie Blackmore, upon hearing that story, absolutely insisted that the master bedroom would be his sleeping quarters while they stayed there. Mick Wall writes that Ronnie James Dio told him that one of the things that Richie liked to do was conduct seances while they were there and get out his Ouija board. And while Ronnie couldn't necessarily prove it, he always suspected that Richie was actually pushing the little pointer around the board. But that there were other things that happened while the band stayed and worked there that couldn't necessarily be so easily explained. Reading now from the article, Mickwall wrote of, The night Thor, the god of thunder, appeared at the table, and a huge thunderstorm suddenly erupted outside or the several occasions when a night at the Ouija board was followed by the discovery that all the tapes of the day's recording had been mysteriously wiped clean, or the times the 24-track tape machine would actually turn itself on and off. The most terrifying occasion, though, was the night Baal, the pagan god of fertility and war, paid them a visit, spelling out the following message on the board, I am Baal. I create chaos. You will never leave here, so don't even try. This upset everyone so much that they insisted Richie put the board away for the night. But later, after Richie had left the room, the others couldn't resist laying out the board and alphabetical numbers again. Once again, Ball appeared. This time the message spelled out, Where is Blackmore? Just as the door opened and in walked Richie. With Richie joining them at the board, this time the glass took on a life of its own, whirling around the table before taking off and smashing against the wall, meeting over. There were several other strange incidents. Richie claimed he was looking in the mirror when the distorted reflection of Mozart, no less, appeared to be staring back at him. Cozy, Cozy Pow, claimed he had been locked in his room one night and all the books came flying off the shelf. The Ouija board was retired after that. The only sign of the turmoil it caused was in the dedication that would appear on the album's sleeve. No thanks to Ball. But do you see where I'm coming from with this stuff? I mean... Just in these few little stories, there's, as I count it, six men, six successful, maybe wildly successful men in their fields, who've all recounted stories of the occult. Tom Zutout, Nikki Six, Dave Mustaine, Richie Blackmore, Ronnie James Dio, and Cozy Powell. Sam Dunn, the force behind the excellent documentary series, Metal, A Headbanger's Journey, interviewed Ronnie James Dio in 2004 as part of his preparations for making the film. As part of that, Ronnie James Dio said this. And my moral standards are not in praise of the devil. 
they are. You know, and if, if that puts anybody off about what I've done in my life, you know, there you go. Hey, I was in Black Sabbath. It's pretty hard to shed that that uh, that that cloak because we, as a band, never ever in interviews would say, "No, we're not evil." No, we wouldn't do those kind of things. No, no, no way. And when you don't defend yourself and you let people make their own judgments as to what you are, especially with a name like Black Sabbath, then you're going to be painted with that paintbrush and you're going to have to wear it. Ronnie, of course, denied any satanic impression or beliefs and has even referred to the song Holy Diver as sort of a Christian-inspired figure. And that makes a whole lot more sense when you realize that back in the 1970s, Ball was trying to wreck his scene. So even if Ronnie James Dio was a bit of a disaffected Catholic, and to be honest, almost every Catholic person I've ever met has been somewhat disaffected by the religion, what about someone different? What about someone like, say, King Diamond? I'll be honest, I was somewhat later on in life when I first heard King Diamond or a Merciful Fate song, and I was excited before I heard him. I, my experience with the band, I suppose, was limited to Metallica's Garage Inc., where they covered several, kind of did a medley of Merciful Fate songs. I think that stuff's pretty good, and I kind of have a taste for gothic, grand, grandiose, faux-satanic metal. Unfortunately, I suppose I would have to say I was highly disappointed the first time I actually heard King Diamond. I think I told a friend of mine that his voice is almost a parody of what you would hear for heavy metal. Like it was something almost from like Saturday Night Live or something like that. But I digress. I also said that King Diamond was faux satanic, and I suppose that's not exactly true either. King Diamond is an actual Satanist. Now, what that actually means, I don't know. I don't know if that means he truly believes that the Christian antagonist is his personal savior and someone worthy of worship, or if it's that more Marilyn Manson-style Satanist where it's not about some deity, it's about worshiping the self and the ego and doing what you want to do. I suppose it's more the former, at least based on an article that Paul Elliott, again of Classic Rock, wrote. You can read this article. I'll put it in the in the show notes. Elliott profiled King Diamond in a 2016 story, and in that article, he wrote about an incident that King Diamond told him about. King Diamond said it was back in February of 1984. He was in Copenhagen, Denmark, entertaining Lars and James Hetfield of Metallica, as well as his band's bassist, Timmy Hansen, and Timmy Hansen's girlfriend. So they're all sitting around King Diamond's place in Copenhagen, all of them drunk. And they've been listening to records including Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Blue Oyster Cult, all the regulars. King Diamond describes that in his place is a altar, a table draped in black cloth lit by tall candles and decorated by a figurine of the pagan Baphomet, as well as occult books like the Satanic Bible and the Necronomicon, again, and in the centerpiece, a human skull. Now, if that's not weird enough for you, here's where it gets actually weird. King Diamond described that in an attempt, I guess, to give his bass player and his girlfriend some privacy, that he, Lars, and Hetfield went back to his bedroom to play table football. And now I'll just read from the article. King Diamond says, And then we heard a gigantic bang. I rushed back into the living room, and both Timmy and the girl were sitting there with their faces white as sheets. Everything from my altar was spread across the floor. 
Timmy said he'd felt himself being lifted up and thrown back down. I said, it's them, don't worry. I put the things back and it was fine. But then the girl went off to the bathroom. After a while, we could hear her crying in there. And then she screamed out, something's growling at me. I can't get out, the door's locked. I took the handle and opened the door. She was sitting there in tears, dumbstruck. Diamond went on to say that he knew exactly what it was. He was certain. It was a visitation, he says. You could hear how they left, out through the bathroom window. And then he claimed it was one of many such occurrences. There were other experiences I had in that place. I remember once I felt a touch on my cheek. That place was haunted. So many people experienced stuff in there, not just me. He concludes, In my life, I've seen a lot of things. Supernatural things. I've seen the place between heaven and hell. And there's a lot more stories like this. And these aren't people saying, Hey, I saw Jesus. I saw Jesus on a cracker. Or I saw Jesus in a field in Iowa. Or whatever. We automatically disregard those. These are famous people. I've already talked about six of them. I guess I forgot David Bowie, if we include him too, and throw in King Diamond. And you can find more pretty easily with a Google search. Famous rock stars who have somehow communicated or had some sort of occult experience. Now, I know what you're thinking. Or at least I hope that you're thinking it. Because I think it too. What do all these people have in common? Well, I shouldn't say this because I don't 100% know, I suppose. But among other things, you know, long hair and guitars and playing in front of thousands of people, there's a lot of drinking and drug use in the rock world. And almost everyone I've talked about has been an admitted addict at some point during their life. Hallucinogens, LSD, mushrooms, there's other things that could certainly be explanations for these experiences. I think you also have to account for, in the rock world, in the heavy metal world, again, as I talked about with Nikki Six, there's a certain amount of myth-making that must happen, right? There's a certain amount of mythologizing you, your experiences, your background, your band, all that sort of thing. I would be a fool not to acknowledge that strong possibility, right? At the same time, though, how many of these stories have you heard before? How familiar are you with any of these particular anecdotes? Other than perhaps King Diamond, have any of these people really tried to use this type of experience as a part of their own personal story and as a way of selling their bands? I mean, certainly Nikki Six has made a lot, and I mean a lot, out of his heroin addiction, written multiple books and songs about it and that sort of thing, but this type of devil stuff hasn't come up a whole lot. As I discussed with Chuck Klosterman in our episode where we talked about his interview with Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page has really backed away from this type of thing and doesn't really seem to want to talk about it or acknowledge it anymore. But Jimmy Page is also a guy who ran an occult bookstore in England and also bought Aleister Crowley's house. Just because the mysterious Jimmy Page has backed away from talking about this sort of thing doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. Maybe, right? I don't know. One of the things we read about in the news a lot lately one of the things that's almost shocking to me is that we're seeing stories almost every other day about UFOs. And not just from crackpots either. These are former military men, former pilots who've been coming forward and talking about things that they've experienced that they can't explain. 
One of the things that the Trump administration ordered was a report about UFOs. And when this episode comes out, I think we'll be something like nine days away from that report being issued by the Department of Defense and the Department of National Intelligence. What's been leaked so far is that the report will not confirm any sort of alien encounters or evidence that aliens have visited Earth, but it will admit that there are multiple phenomenon that have been observed and witnessed that we cannot explain. If you are a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not saying that I am, but if one is a conspiracy theorist, if you looked at the last year or two of these types of stories and leaks coming out of the Pentagon, and other reputable people, you might think that the government has been leaking this out in drips and drabs over the course of the past couple years as a way of preparing us for the idea that aliens have visited us and that aliens might actually have some sort of contact with us, be living under the water or visiting us from above, what have you. We continue to worry about tax rates and the Kardashians when there seems to be reasonably strong evidence that we've been visited by extraterrestrials or perhaps that the Russians or the Chinese have technology that far surpasses our own. And maybe if that just keeps leaking out little bit by little bit, maybe we won't really care that much. Just like maybe we won't care about the other side if it's Nikki Six and Ronnie James Dio and King Diamond who tell us about it. After all, don't people say that the Lord works in mysterious ways? Maybe in some strange fashion, these are his heralds. I mean, there is biblical support for it. In his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 20, the Apostle Paul warned the Christians, I do not want you to become shares with the demons. Genesis and Jude refer to the resistor, and the devil means slanderer, and that this former angelic son of God made himself a resistor and a slanderer by choosing to rebel against God and in time enticed other angels to join him in his rebellious course. Those allies became demons. The book of Revelation says in chapter 21, verse 8, that those practicing spiritism will meet destruction at God's hand. So what do we make of all that? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I believe in God. But I do know this. If you show me some kid who says he died and went to heaven and wrote a book about it, or you show me some hillbilly who saw God in a cornfield. And then you show me King Diamond who said that Baphomet visited his apartment back in 1984. I'm inclined to believe King Diamond the most. But if I believe King Diamond, it does make me more open-minded that there's someone up there looking out for me too. All right, that is this episode of Well Disguised. 
It should come out Tuesday, June 15th, 2021. June 16th, 2021 will be the one-year anniversary of the release of the first episode, actually the first two episodes, on Robert Plant and Coverdale Page. I really didn't know if I'd make it a year. I really didn't. But I guess I am kind of proud that I am. But regardless of any self-pride I may have about this whole experience, if any of you have ever listened to one episode, and I guess if you're listening to this, you've listened to something. To all those of you, I guess I should say, who've ever listened to an episode of Well Disguised, I cannot express my gratitude. That's so cool. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being with me. I hope you're enjoying it. I also want to say this. Earlier this week, I was checking my email on my phone, and there was a little pop-up, for lack of a better term, at the top of, the, uh, of my phone there saying, hey, would you like to rate this app? Are you enjoying mail? And, oh my God, when did we get like this? Why do we have to rate and review every single thing in our life? I'm sorry that I have ever asked you in the past to leave a rating or a review on iTunes. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm so over it. If you listen, great. I see the numbers. I see them pop up. If you wouldn't mind telling a friend, that would be great. If you know somebody who might enjoy it, tell them. Or if you're in a news group or uh, some sort of uh, message board that somebody might be interested, I'm happy for you to tell them about it. But I'm not going to ask you to go play Apple's game and put it up on iTunes anymore. If you want to, that's great. And I really appreciate that too. But man, I'm just so over it. All right. A few episodes ago, I spoke with Chuck Klosterman, which was great. Last episode, I spoke with Chris Coe, a.k.a. The Era Fanatic, and that was great too. This episode, I did something that I've wanted to do for a while, which is this idea of making rock stars as some sort of prophets in a weird kind of negative way. And I don't know if that worked out or is great or not, but whatever. I'll, I'll be happy to hear from you. Next time, I think we'll just talk music. I think I'm just going to talk about music, kind of old school. Ugh, I can't believe I just said old school. Like, like I used to, all right? Twitter, well underscore disguised. Websites at welldisguised.com. My email, welldisguised.outlook.com. Would love to hear from you. I mean, at least if you're saying nice things, I guess. All right. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. I'll see you soon.